Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Luke Giaconetti, and if you're expecting Michael Bailey and or Scott Gardner, well, you've got me! So, if you're unsatisfied, please return the unused portion of this podcast where you purchased it for a full refund. I'm just joshing. There are no refunds. Anyway, I'm going to be filling in for Scott and Michael this week, and we've got two great back issues here, and uh, we're going to jump right into it. Our first issue comes from the Marvel Comics Group, and it is G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, number 10, cover date of April 1983, with a cover price of 60 cents. Our cover is a classic one, if you like G.I. Joe at all. We see Scarlet and Snake Eyes walking down the street, and it looks like just a regular suburban town. There's a sign that says, Welcome to Springfield, a nice little town, but unbeknownst to our two uh, soldiers, Hiding behind the facade of a house are two Cobra troopers with their rifles at the ready. It's really a, uh, like I said, a very, very popular, well-known image amongst G.I. Joe comic fans. Our story opens up in Midtown Manhattan, where uh, the Joe team is going to be infiltrating a co- suspected Cobra stronghold. And on the roof of the stronghold, we have the first team, which is made up of Snake Eyes, Scarlet, and Zap. And for those who uh, aren't so familiar with uh, G.I. Joe, Scarlet, of course, is the original female of the team, a function of counterintelligence. Snake Eyes is the super commando slash ninja, who I think everybody knows. And Zap is the uh, demolitions man. He also uh, was a bazooka soldier early on, but in the comics he became a uh, demolitions and combat engineer. They're on the roof, and they've taken out all of the uh, obvious defenses on the roof, and these defenses are uh, blinds. They're designed to drive you towards uh, booby traps. So it's a uh, you know kind of a double blind situation, but Zap disables them. Down on the street, uh, in a disguised truck, is a team of Hawk, who is the commander of the GI Joe team, Clutch, Short Fuse, Flash, and Rock and Roll, and their job is to um, cover from the street level. And then, uh, then, then they're going to use their reinforced vehicle to assault the building. And uh, interestingly enough, here uh, I'm not sure. I'm guessing it's supposed to be uh, short fuse. Short fuse is drawn to look like Grand Slam. He's got the pads on his chest and uh, knees and arms. And I know that doesn't mean anything to uh, anyone who doesn't read or collect GI Joe, but um, it's just very, it's just surprising to see him. Uh, look like because Grand Slam is obviously not here, and yet it looks like he is. Of course, that the uh, silliness continues because down in the sewer, 
the team of Breaker, Stalker, and Grunt are going to be busting in through the basement from the sewer, and they're going to lead the. They're going to be the first step in the assault. And uh, we see them down in the sewer, and Breaker is, of course, uh, blowing a bubble gum bubble as he always does. And then Stalker's in the lead, and Grunt is also drawn to look like uh, Flash or. Um, um, Grand Slam or whoever you like with the pads on them. I think this may have been done primarily to just break it up because you got a lot of guys in green fatigues. Um, you know, each of the early Joes have some discerning uh, characteristic. Uh, Short Fuse, for instance, uh, wears his glasses all the time. Uh, Breaker, as I said, blows bubbles. Uh, Clutch has his beard. Um, Zap has a mustache, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, inside the Cobra building, the Baroness is in charge, and she receives a report that the intruders have been detected. And so she pushes a button on her console, and suddenly on the roof, a big trap door opens, and uh, Snake Eyes, Scarlet, and Zap fall into the pit. Uh, Snake Eyes does a, and Scarlet do a nifty trick where Scarlet shoots an arrow at a ventilation uh, vent, and then Snake Eyes throws a rope to catch it, and the three of them are hanging for a second, but a handy Cobra agent comes and cuts the rope, and they fall into a round metal cell. Down on the ground, Hawk screams that Scarlet missed the radio check, and Clutch drives straight through the front door, bashing it to pieces, and out pour the Joe team. And uh, actually, it's kind of funny, because Flash says, if, one, if those Cobras done something to Scarlet, they got a world of hurt coming to them. And it's like, I didn't know you cared, Flash. I really didn't. And then from the basement, the... Uh, team of Stalker and Grunt and Breaker busts through the wall, and there it's now uh, hoofing it up 20 flights of steps to meet up with the team. But it's all for naught, because the Baroness pushes another button, and suddenly the whole penthouse of the building reveals itself to be a Cobra aircraft, and it takes off and flies away. And on the roof, uh... I guess, not sure who this is, I guess it's uh, Clutch, says they're getting away, Hawk, and they're taking Scarlet, Snake Eyes, and Zap with them. What are we going to do? And Hawk says, what can we do? It's a bad draw of the cards, boys. And those three are on their own. We then see the Baroness is taking no chances. She says, unfortunately, we don't have an in-flight movie for our passengers, but I'm sure we can provide them with some form of entertainment. And she gasses the three of them and knocks them out. That's my very sexy Baroness voice. Hope you people like that. Later on, Scarlet awakens in a cell and immediately begins having bizarre hallucinations. She sees her hands turn into claws. Zap is melting like a candle. Other strange things. And the Cobra Troopers guarding them say that uh, security's been a lot easier to maintain since Dr. Venom started drugging the prisoners with hallucinogens, which is such a Dr. Venom thing. Um... Uh, you may be familiar with the character Dr. Mindbender, who was on the cartoon and the toys. Well, Dr. Venom is basically his uh, predecessor. He was the original Cobra Mad Scientist, and he plays a big role in these early issues, and especially this one. Uh, speaking of Dr. Venom, we cut to his lab, which is uh, several miles away, apparently, and he has Snake Eyes strapped into a large, elaborate machine, which we will learn is the Brainwave Scanner. And what he is doing, he is programming the machine by showing Snake Eyes thousands upon thousands of images, and then recording his brain activity. And Cobra Commander asks what's the, you know, what value this is, 
And Dr. Venom tells them that then we can, they can then reverse it. Once they build a vocabulary for a certain individual, they can then use it to read their mind. And what they want to do is discover the location of the Joe's headquarters, which at this time uh, Cobra had no idea about. Meanwhile, Scarlet and Zap are still hallucinating. There's actually a really kind of creepy thing here that Scarlet has hallucinated that she is buried up to her nose. Even her mouth is covered, and there's a cobra uh, hissing before her and two tarantulas calling on her. And uh, Zap, meanwhile, is uh, hallucinating that he is a turtle stuck on his back with the hot sun beating him down. And um, their cobra guard very helpfully passes them uh, a thing of water and bread, and another prisoner in there who's actually just a kid. He says, "Don't." Dr-, he says, "No, don't drink it." And he grabs the water and he holds the water up to the light. And he says, "Heat will make the water safe." So we cut back to Doctor Venom's lab, and Doctor Venom is now reversed the procedure, and he's starting to read Snake Eyes's memory. And Snake Eyes is very disciplined, so uh, all the things that Doctor Venom can see, he can see um, Snake Eyes working at a gas station as a young man. Uh, going to his senior prom, and then he sees him in uh, the Middle East on a military operation, looks like a Black Hawk mission, and the chopper goes down, and uh, Dr. Venom is not pleased. He says, very clever, Mr. Snake Eyes. You are dredging up all your painful memories because you think they will form a more formidable block against thinking about G.I. Joe headquarters. But it matters not to me how many times you relive the helicopter crash that disfigured you. I shall keep repeating my question, and I assure you, I shall not grow tired before you do. Dr. Venom was a pretty bad dude, and uh, this is a... He he didn't stick around too long. He got replaced by Mindmender a couple of years in, but he was a nasty guy. Back in the cell, the kid tells uh, Scarlet and Zap that he remembered reading how certain drugs lose their potency when exposed to heat, and that he figured out uh, a while ago that he could kill the drugs in the water by holding it up to the light bulb. And the kid says that uh, he's been planning a way, uh, an escape, but he needs their help. He only needed a couple other people, and now there is ticket out. And uh, basically, Zap and Scarlet have no choice but to go with him because he's the only game in town. Uh, Zap says, "I, I gotta know. F- uh, I gotta know first, kid. Where are we?" And the kid says, "Springfield. It used to be a nice little town." Back in Doctor Venom's lab, he's continuing to dig deep. He's uh, more and more of Snake Eyes' memories are coming to the forefront, uh, including his travels across the globe to Berlin, Cuba, Cyprus, Chile, Laos, Cambodia. He sees uh, Snake Eyes leaving Saigon on the last helicopter out of Nam. Then he sees uh, personal tragedy as uh, Snake Eyes remembers his family being killed in a flaming wreck. But then he starts to crack a little bit, and he starts thinking about the G.I. Joe motor pool. We see Clutch in his vamp. We see the Mobat tank, but it's not uh, detailed enough. Dr. Venom can't figure it out. And he says, you cannot conceal the truth from me forever, Mr. Snake Eyes. Back in the cell, the kid starts hollering about a meeting of the anti-Cobra underground, and the guards go to check it out. Um, But of course, it's a trap, and uh, Scarlet and Zap clonk the guards and take their uniforms and then walk out with the kid. Back at Dr. Venom's lab, we're starting to see more and more of uh, the G.I. Joe headquarters. We see Snake Eyes thinking about their training grounds where we see uh, actually it's pretty neat because we see Rock and Roll using his his heavy machine gun, Flash firing his laser rifle, and Scarlet firing a crossbow. But he blocks it out by thinking about the funeral of his family. 
but Dr. Venom persists, and he says, Soon the pain and emotional torment will become totally unbearable, and then you shall have your release by telling me what I want to know. Kid and Zap and Scarlet uh, hotwire a car and head off into town, and it's actually, this is a very creepy sequence because it's a, um, a nine-panel grid with a taller panel on top, so it's ten panels. And as they're driving through what looks like a completely ordinary town, the kid starts telling them about how Cobra made inroads into Springfield. And Scarlet says, I don't believe it. This whole town is a Cobra front. It looks so ordinary. And the kid says, that's the way it used to be around here, real ordinary, until the soap people came to town. And Zap says, soap people? The kid says, yeah, it was one of those pyramid schemes. They got you to sell household cleaning products for extra money and encouraged you to get others involved. Weekly sales meetings soon escalated into leadership indoctrination, and pretty soon the ball was rolling beyond control. They were very convincing. They made it seem un-American not to want to get involved. Anybody who resisted was boycotted by the rest, and by that time, the rest was the majority. Persistent resistors simply disappeared, and their kids started turning in their parents. They started building secret back rooms into all the buildings and lots of underground complexes. Most of the big revolving signs have radar dishes built into them. The garages became depots for Cobra tanks. The pizza parlor is a storeroom for poison gas. This sort of thing was uh, something that Larry Hama brought to G.I. Joe, was to treat Cobra like a real-world real world cult. And this is the foundation of all of them. It's, it's really... I mean, it's kind of quaint looking at it now, but this was this is creepy stuff, you know. So they pull into the video arcade, which also doubles as Dr. Venom's headquarters, and they go inside, and the arcade is packed full of kids. And um, Scarlet says, amazing, are you telling me that every kid in this place is Cobra indoctrinated? And the kid says, some of them are even junior officers. They try to saunter in real uh, sneaky-like, but they're immediately spotted as outsiders, and the crowd turns on them. Down in the basement, Dr. Venom is making real progress, and he's getting ready to uh he's getting he's getting ready to uh extract the information. He sees an image of Hawk and so he knows they're getting uh close. Uh but Snake Eyes' vital signs start to flicker and fall off. And Dr. Venom is, is furious because he can't have his subject die when he's this close. Just then the intruder alert goes off. And uh they run upstairs, and we see Flash on the brainwave scanner, Snake Eyes remembering when he was taught the secret ninja technique of the way of the inner anvil, whereby you may steal your breath and heartbeat to the semblance of death. Upstairs in the arcade, the junior officers have turned on uh, uh, our heroes with a what originally looked like just an arcade game. It's actually a giant laser gun, and the champ of the arcade is shooting at them with the laser. Uh, Venom sees that the junior officers have things well in hand, so he goes back downstairs, and it looks like Snake Eyes is dead, because he's flatlined. Venom is ticked off, but there's nothing he can do about it, so he asks the Cobra to help him unstrap him. And no sooner do they unstrap him than uh, Snake Eyes gets a thwack in on the Cobra, and then a thoom on Dr. Venom, and then he puts his mask on, and he is running upstairs, and he kicks the door in, and immediately takes out the power transformer, so that the laser gun uh, has no more power. Our heroes beat it out of there and grab the grab the car they have wired and make it to the and hoof it to the airfield. The kid says that the airfield is uh, is safe because Cobra doesn't want to tip off anyone who might just be passing through. At the airfield, they find the flying penthouse that brought them there, and they they board and they they have to leave the kid behind because he says, "I this is my home. I just can't run away." And he says his family is still here underground working against Cobra. So. 
Uh, Zap tells them that we'll come back with help as soon as possible. Just hang in there. Holding the Cobra pilot at gunpoint, they demand that he fly them back someplace, but the pilot's like, you don't know where you are. You were unconscious when you got flown in, so he's just going to keep... You said, you're not getting anything out of me. So Zap and Scarlet try and discuss what their options are, and the pilot pulls a pistol that he's got hidden under his helmet on Snake Eyes, and Snake Eyes ventilates him, let's just say, with his machine gun. And now they're basically... The controls are shot. They don't know where they are, so they're pretty much just they can fly in a straight line, and that's about it. So they keep flying, and hours later they show up in Secaucus, New Jersey. Actually, no, it's Bayonne. They show up in the Bayonne Mall, and uh, they parachute out of the uh, craft, and they land on the Incredible Hulk. Well, not quite. It's a guy dressed as the Incredible Hulk for the grand opening of the Bayonne Mall, and um, so they're able to hitch a ride back with the. On the bus back to uh, New York because uh, Zavs, uh, they get a ride with the Marvel booking agent, and uh, the guy says it's a good thing that Marvel booking agent was nice enough to loan us bus fare to get back to Staten Island. And Zap says, "Nice, you should have given us a bonus for sparking up the show." And the bus driver says, "Next bus for Staten Island, leaving here at hey, no weirdos on my bus." Because Snake Eyes is still in his full commando gear with his gun slung under his uh, arm, and that's the end of the issue. I said before that this introduced some really uh, well-liked and classic elements of the G.I. Joe uh, comic. And, you know, the Brainwave Scanner... The Brainwave Scanner is still being used today. There's a book now being published by IDW called G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, which continues the Marvel continuity. And the Brainwave Scanner is still a major portion of that. Um, The introduction of Snake Eyes' past... Snake Eyes was a complete mystery before this issue started filling it in. And Hama would continue to build the myth of Snake Eyes over his entire run, and Snake Eyes has become the most popular character in the G.I. Joe mythos. And then the idea of Springfield, of this uh, little town, little American town that's actually a front for this evil terrorist organization. This would, you know, be repeated over and over. We'd see other little towns that were basically Cobra fronts and... You know, this built into the idea that Cobra Commander was just a regular guy who had so much hate built up inside of him that he was able to uh, create this organization basically from the ground up from his strength of will. And by finding others who had the same resentment and anger inside of them that he could exploit. And I really like that. And that was always, to me, one of the reasons why I thought G.I. Joe lasted as long as it did. I mean, um... G.I. Joe, the original run, lasted 155 issues. I mean, I would challenge you to find a new comic introduced nowadays that wasn't, that, you know, not even a licensed book. There's any book that could last 155 issues. There's not many. And this was a, a you know, a licensed book, a quote-unquote kid's book. And it was a, you know, a, a strong presence in the Marvel lineup for years and years until finally the toy line ended, and that was that. Uh, no real interesting ads in this one. Uh, the only one that really stands out, there's an Epic Comics ad for a coyote. Uh, and this guy's got a gun on a coyote. It says, buy this book or I'll shoot this coyote. I'm not familiar with this uh, title, so I have absolutely no idea what that means. Um, we've got a little half-page ad for Dreadstar and Company on the uh, bullpen bulletins. Um, you know, everybody likes Jim Starlin, and uh, it says, Now everyone can enjoy the adventures of Jim Starlin's amazing team of cosmic rebels from the beginning. Uh, it didn't last that long, so I guess it's a relatively short adventure. We do have a full-page ad for Secret Wars 2, um, 
which Secret Wars 2, number 2, actually. Uh, even though they show the cover for number 1, the copy says Secret Wars 2, number 2, guest starring The Amazing Spider-Man, The Fantastic Four, Power Man, and Iron Fist. The action starts here and continues in. And they got some other books. Uh, let's see. I think that's about it. There's uh, no real great ads in this one, but this is a really good issue. I know um, not everybody is willing or interested in checking out G.I. Joe, but uh, it's definitely good comics, and this is a good issue, and uh, I, I think this one's uh, definitely worth uh, reading if you find it on the cheap. And you usually can. Joe books, except for number 21, which is Silent Interlude, which is a silent issue, and then some of the later um, issues at the... Uh, Basically, when the body count started rolling up, uh, those issues get a bit more expensive, but these these ones are usually pretty cheap. Our second book this evening comes from DC Comics, and it is Wonder Woman number 284, cover date of October 1981, a cost of 60 cents. And our cover has Wonder Woman riding the back of a Chinese red dragon going bonk-bonk on its head with her fists, as the copy says, a dragon stalks the streets. He's shooting fire out of his nostrils. Actually, pretty neat. Uh, the top part of the cover, by her logo, actually the Huntress and Earth 2 Robin are swinging around it on either side. It says, together again for the first time, the Huntress and the Earth 2 Robin. There's also a little note that says, now, more pages than ever, because this was when um, they had to raise the price of books due to inflation, and so they added some backup features and raised the page count. And then in the lower right corner, we say, See the film, Superman 2. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, that didn't quite work out for me since I was um, less than a year old when this comic was published. So no, I did not see Superman 2. Our story opens with Wonder Woman, Steve Trevor, and Chinese agent Lao Chen staring at the reader, looking shocked. And uh, Trevor says, We came here looking for arms smugglers. We never expected to find this... And Chen says, it is real! And we turn the page to a double-page spread of a dragon crashing through the wall, and he says, we have found a living dragon! Our story is called Shadow of the Dragon. The writer is Mr. Jerry Conway, with Jose Delbo and Dave Hunt on the art. And as a dragon crashes through, uh, Wonder Woman makes the pithy comment that more accurately, Lao Chen, it's found us! And we see that the uh, our heroes are actually in the... they're on the trail of an individual called the Red Dragon, and who is a, uh, well, um, he, he's a bad guy. Let's just leave it at that for now. And apparently they found this warehouse where he was stockpiling weapons, and some of his agents were there, and by, uh, one of the agents had a control charm. It looks like a little uh, amulet. And by, um, Wonder Woman apparently smashed it last issue, and now the dragon is on a rampage. And so uh, Wonder Woman grabs her two compatriots and runs out of there to get them to safety. And um, Trevor, actually, it's it's he's kind of a dick because um, Wonder Woman grabs her and grabs uh, Trevor and Lao Chen and says, "We're leaving now." And Trevor says, "Wonder Woman, wait!" And she says, "Sorry, Steve, but I can't wait. That dragon was rearing back, getting ready to spring. We don't want to be in range when it does." And he goes, "Blasted angel, stop protecting me!" And it's like, "Wow, okay. Would you have rather she left you there to die, Steve? Would that have been preferable?" Uh, to his credit, he does then beat himself up a couple panels later, saying, Angel, I didn't mean... And then he thinks, Trevor, you jerk, what did you mean? So, Wonder Woman goes in and uh, takes the fight straight to the dragon. She uh, double axe handles him right in the chin, 
uh, as it's getting ready to breathe fire. Uh, but she says, Great Hera, hit it with all my strength and barely staggered it. I need a strategy, a plan, but most of all I need time. And she keeps dodging the dragon as he picks up a, a parked car and throws it at her. She ducks underneath it. But then uh, then she has her plan. She pulls out the golden lasso and she lariats the uh, dragon. And by lariat I mean like the western style. It would be pretty cool like a professional wrestling lariat if she just wham like Stan Hansen the dragon but no. But So she hooks the uh, dragon around the neck with her lasso and spins him around in the air. And then she lets go and tosses him, impaling him on a street lamp. And uh, explosion and fire follows and uh, Trevor, uh, playing the part of the Master of the Obvious, says, Chen, did you see that dragon wasn't alive after all? And it was nothing more than an overgrown wind-up toy. Chen goes, a very deadly toy, Colonel Trevor. She And then asks Wonder Woman, how did you know? She goes, that a dose of high voltage would kill it? When I saw this, the control charm, actually a sophisticated computer chip. So she reasoned that if it was alive, it couldn't be controlled by microcomputer. Which is uh, pretty smart. They go back into the warehouse, and they go down to the sub-levels, and they find all sorts of high-tech weaponry, all stolen from DOD contractors. And one of them, is, he makes a, um, Steve makes a comment that they've got enough to fight a small war. One of the weapons that's in here is the 120-7 missile, a top-secret cruise missile. And this missile is um, something as a project that Steve helped develop, and it is a missile that can evade all known anti-missile systems. And so Chen, you know, offers the hand of friendship and saying that on behalf of my government and the name of our new relationships, we ask that you come to Peiping to help us fight this weapon, because the Red Dragon is a menace both to the Chinese and the Americans. Wonder Woman quickly slips out and changes back to Diana Prince, and um, I'm sorry, I, this, you know, the whole thing with Clark Kent and Superman always bugged me, and this bugs me too. It's like, you know, suddenly Diana Prince runs in and Trevor says. Diana, did you see Wonder Woman go by? And she says, sorry, Colonel, no. And then she says, the way he's looking at me, does Steve suspect that I'm Wonder Woman? It's like, well, maybe because she was just here, and now she's gone, and you're here, and you both have the same color hair, and the same build, and the same face. I'm just saying. Anyway, they all get on a plane, and they fly to China. And uh, as they get off at the airport, uh, Diana is really just taken aback by the way... Uh, by the, her surroundings there. She says, Steve seems so uncomfortable, and I feel the same way. It's, and she goes on to say that everything is so drab, and there's so many people, and she wonders if the West will ever understand a culture in which privacy is not a right, but a luxury. But then she gets kind of preachy and says, yet look, And yet, looking at the people, I see the common face of humanity, laughing and smiling, frowning and in tears. Perhaps beneath the surface we all share the same hopes and dreams. That is what I was taught by my mother, Queen Hippolyte, and that is what I must believe. The more you know. Anywho, they go to the uh, war room, and Steve is amazed that they brought them to the war room because that means that they must be in big trouble. And they talk about the uh, the Red Dragon and that they have know where he is. He's uh, running... A, um, he runs a feudal castle and that he's basically a madman and wants to overthrow their government. And their intelligence reports that he's planning a major offensive. And right as that's reported, one of the uh, one of the men working in the war room turns out to be an agent of the Red Dragon, and he throws a gas bomb, putting everybody to sleep. Uh, then Diana and Steve Trevor awaken in a hospital, and everybody seems to be fine. 
Uh, except that Colonel Trevor has a little prick of something hidden behind his ear. There's a little editorial note that says, Ah, but if Colonel Trevor and his doctor could see what we see, a gleam of freshly planted organic plastic behind his left ear, he wouldn't be so certain of his self-diagnosis. Unbeknownst to this, uh, Lao comes in, Lao Chang comes in to see them, and he says that they, uh, that they've, what they, what they're assuming was an assassination attempt on Trevor failed, and that the agent who did it committed suicide before, um, before he could be captured. And so now they're, they're just kind of filing it away, and they're back to working at the Red Dragon. In the Red Dragon's palace, one of his agents goes running through the halls up to the throne room, and we don't get a good look at the dragon. He's hidden behind smoke, but uh, you can see he's wearing robes and a hat. And he's got long fingernails. And the agent says that Steve Trevor, the American who brings the computer codes that might upset the course of your stolen 120-7 missile, has been neutralized. Now nothing stands in the way of successful launching. And the Red Dragon responds, I am pleased indeed, but as ever you overlook an opportunity while pursuing the merely obvious. And he tells him that uh, that Trevor n- might be useful, and that to activate his control crystal, which is what they implanted on his neck, he to be ready to do whatever is needed to achieve our ends. And so the agent runs down into the control room in the castle, and they order the missile launched, and we see a USAF-120-7 missile being launched. In the control room, uh, radar goes off, and they see that the target is the Great Wall of China. And then they, they run out, and our heroes are immediately on the road to uh, the Great Wall to see if they can stop it. Trevor's carrying a remote control, and he says, Relax, Lyle, the DoD spent a billion dollars perfecting this gadget, and it's the key to the entire 120-7 system. With it, an onset observer can control the missile, guide it, or abort it. And so they're at the site, and they're, um, the missile is in, you know, coming down out of the sky, and they're getting ready to stop it. And Trevor says, stop the missile. Yes, that's what you want, isn't it? But it's not what he wants. And Trevor throws the uh, remote control on the ground and stomps on it. Says, I am doing what the Red Dragon commands. We exerve, we exist but to serve his will. And then the missile is about to strike. And Diana thinks to herself, Lau is in a state of shock. And I can't blame him. That missile will strike in a matter of seconds. I'm not sure even Wonder Woman can save us now. To be continued? Always love that. It's like, no, we're going to put one more issue out where Wonder Woman's blown to bits, and then we're going to cancel it. We've also got a backup here uh, with Robin and the Huntress by Paul Levitz and Joe Stanton. It's okay. I'm not really a big Huntress fan. I'm not really a big Robin fan. Uh, The gist of it is is that now they're on patrol together, and they're helping out the other partner in their law firm who's being um, framed by a mob boss, and they basically break into the guy's house and threaten him. Uh, it's alright. Nothing great. Now, the Wonder Woman book, first off, let me send a shout-out to my friend Frank. And Frank, I met because he runs the Idlehead of Diabolu, which is a Martian Manhunter blog, which you can find at idle-head.blogspot.com. Well, besides being a fan of the Martian Manhunter, Frank's also a fan of Wonder Woman, and he has a Wonder Woman blog at I'm hoping I'm getting this right. New-wonder-woman.blogspot.com And some of his missives and writings about Wonder Woman have helped pique my interest in the character. And then um, Tomorrow's, which you can... They publish uh, Back Issue Magazine, Brick Journal, and other such uh, 
fine publications. Uh, they had a free issue for download of Back Issue, which had an article about uh, the Wonder Woman era being written by uh, Jerry Conway. And so when I found these uh, at the 33-cent bin at Borderlands in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, I picked them up. I picked up about six issues of Wonder Woman from this era just to give them a try. And uh, I'll be honest, I really liked this. I thought it was a good story. Um, it reminds me a lot of kind of... Uh, actually, it reminds me of like some 70s Iron Man, which coming from me is a compliment, because I like that. It's I like the international flair of it. The Red Dragon seems like uh, Wonder Woman's version of the Mandarin. Apparently he didn't appear too much. I tried to do some research before the show and couldn't find a lot of information on him, but the idea of a, a Chinese um, madman who wants to return the country to the feudal state and rule as a warlord, I mean, that's pretty much the Mandarin. But I like the Mandarin, so I don't have the pro- uh, particular problem with Wonder Woman fighting a Mandarin analog. Uh, the opening sequence, fighting the dragon, it's really nice looking. Double and Hunt do a good job. The dragon doesn't look cartoony. He really looks like a Chinese dragon. And uh, Wonder Woman, she looks she looks uh, graceful and strong at the same time. The uh, panel here on page 6, where she does the double axe handle into the dragon's chin, it says, THOOM! And it just looks really great. And then, of course, her, um, there's a, my, I think my favorite panel in the book is on page eight. It's a first panel. It's, uh, one panel the length of the, or excuse me, the width of the page, where she's got him, the dragon lassoed with the rope, and she's spinning him around, and you see the speed lines of her spinning him, and he's, he's wiped out a car. But her, between her pose and the way that the, uh, dragon looks, just, oh, great looking panel, really nice. And then the rest of the story, I, there's, there's some little intrigues here and there, and, you know, stuff about, uh, you know, the differences between the East and the West, and, you know, mutually assured destruction, and all that stuff, and it's, it's nice window dressing, but overall, this is just a really fun little comic, and made me very eager to want to go and read some of the other Wonder Woman comics that I picked up from this same run. Also interesting is the letters page. First off, uh, there's a little box where they talk about, um, the aforementioned price increase and page count increase. They talk about specifically how they have 27 pages of story and art, which is six more than Marvel's 21 pages. And they say, when inflation forces our competitors to raise their prices, our magazines will be an even better comparative value. Then we get a couple of, uh, we get three letters, and it's interesting because uh, the first one is pretty much saying that I can't believe this title's actually getting good. And it's like, well, why were you reading it for so long? And then I remember that the comics was 60 cents, and you could probably afford to read it even if it wasn't great. The second letter from a Mr. Dan Beck actually kind of takes on a common criticism of Wonder Woman in that she is, uh, you know, self-righteous and moaning and whining and, you know, all about women being superior and all this. And, And this has been kind of a charge leveled against the character, both fairly and unfairly over the years. And it seems to just stick around. I mean, but some of these things that he's referring to I can I can see the I can see where this might have annoyed or upset a reader, and um, and the comment here he makes is Wonder Woman's inability or lack of desire to see life from a male point of view or at least try to understand it makes her the personification of all the inequalities of males and females. She is what she hates the most. She is an example of what neither sex should be like. But over the years and especially in the past few, she seems to state and teach young people that the female point of view is the only one to consider and the only one to contain any elements of sanity. Her attitudes need some reconsideration and change. And unfortunately, um, 
Len Wein, who was the editor, did not respond to this letter. He just let it uh, stand on its own merits. I think he makes a good point. Um, you know, the character of Wonder Woman, I've said this in discussions before, is that, you know, her problem to me is that she's more than just a superhero character. She's an icon, and she's an icon of um, femininity and women's lib and the female power movement and all this stuff. And, no, that's fine. I'm, I have no problem with superheroes being... Um, allegorical for other, uh, you know, broader real-world topics. The problem is, is that amongst, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, what we used to call women's libbers or feminists or whatever you want to call it, they don't necessarily always agree on what their movement is. So it makes it difficult for her to be a symbol for these, uh, for this type of group when there's no, um, how do I say, concurrence on what they want the symbol to be. So, you know, she falls into the rut sometimes of just being preachy and slapping members of the Justice League and stuff like that, whereas I actually like the way that it is here, even though I kind of I joked about it a little bit. I like her talking about the um, that people are alike all over and that, you know, people of the East and people of the West, uh, at the end of the day, we're all human and we're all the same and all deserving of respect. And I think that sort of approach is what works best for me personally as a reader of Wonder Woman. One thing, just to go modernist for a second here, I really liked that in the Black as Night series, any time we saw uh, Diana through the um, Black Lantern vision, it was love. That was what she was, just love, and that she loves all. Let's see, ads. Uh, first off, we do have a very cool... Double, pa- double page ad right in the middle. It's on glossy paper, and it is for Atari, the most exciting games in the galaxy. And we get um, a graphic depiction of Space Invaders, Asteroids, Missile Command, a personal favorite of mine, and Video Pinball. Plus, Oth- Warlords, Othello, Breakout, Pele Soccer, Adventure, Superman! That's a throw to uh, Michael and Scott. Because I know how much you guys love the Atari Superman. Maze Craze, Air Sea Battle, and more. And uh, just a fun little ad here. They're playing the two kids, playing the 2600. I never had a 2600. I had a ColecoVision with the 2600 extender pack that you could plug in the front because Atari made it out of off-the-shelf parts. So I played lots of Atari 2600, just not on the 2600. Uh, We do get in the back of that the ad for uh, Superman... The public 